This is WMPG. I'm Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about courage, the courage to talk about the subjects that are the hardest to bring up, but that we think about the most. This month's series is on the untold stories of dementia, how we live with it in our loved ones, and how we live with the fear of getting it ourselves. Today I'm going to be speaking with Melinda, who has chosen not to use her last name due to the sensitivity of tonight's subject. Melinda's husband, a physician, was diagnosed at 57 years old with a rare form of early-onset dementia that has a genetic cause. We'll be talking not only about the challenges of caring for someone so young with dementia, but also about the impact on their six children and eight grandchildren. Welcome to Safe Space, Melinda. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about your husband before he became ill. What was he like? Um, he was a small-town physician, uh, loved his work, loved medicine, uh, loved taking care of people. It was his main goal. Um, we were raising six children, and life wasn't perfect, but it wasn't, it wasn't bad. <laughs> it wasn't mm-hmm. bad. And I understand he has a, an unusual form of dementia. He doesn't have Alzheimer's disease, but he has something called frontotemporal dementia. Yes, ma'am, frontotemporal dementia. It was diagnosed... Um, in September of 2011, and uh, we had seen other, you know, signs previous. Uh, he had sort of a nervous, what we would call it at the time, a nervous breakdown in May of that year. Uh, started practicing just part-time, um, and then, you know, things just didn't get better, and the diagnosis, as we now find out, was not correct, the original diagnosis. Um, we closed our practice immediately when we were told to, um, Shortly thereafter, we encountered some legal issues because of his uh, dementia and that it had been ongoing for some time. He was uh, also into pain management. So um, his inability, his bad judgment kept him from um, disdaining what the patients really wanted. You know, uh, he believed everything. So he actually just got in trouble with the law for writing prescriptions and uh, too many prescriptions and some other charges, and he was actually sentenced to um, a two-year prison term. Um, He has uh, now been released to a nursing home to finish out his sentence of about 10 months uh, as soon as we find an appropriate place for him. So, So let me understand, because you said a lot there. So in May, before he was diagnosed, he had a nervous breakdown, and that word means so many different things to different people. Do you mean that he became extremely anxious and distressed, or what do you mean by that? Yes, extremely, extremely anxious. Uh, followed me around continuously, would not let me out of his sight. We, we kept him from work, you know, for a couple of weeks. He... He could not deal with patients well at that time. He mumbled to himself uh, when he came home. He was very stressed. And I see. So unlike, you know, say, something like Alzheimer's, the memory loss is not the first thing that shows up. It's this kind of personality, social yes, changes. Yes. No, no memory loss. No. Actually, even to this day, um, if you can catch him at a good moment, his memory is fine. Um, no memory loss, really. Just a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, a lot of repetition. Uh, like I said, he, he would call me 20 or 30 times a day. Um, and, you know, the kids, they'd say, Dad, leave Mom alone. Mom's gone to school now. It's a book. Leave her alone. You can't call her. 
you know, and, and then they would make bargains. Okay, you can call us five times, but that's all today. It just compulsive, compulsive behaviors. Um, yes. And another classic finding that we have with frontotemporal dementia is that people's judgment becomes severely impaired. So it sounds like your husband, sort of tragically, his judgment was impaired and actually got him into trouble with the law. Yes. Before yes, he ma'am. even knew what was going on, before he even knew that he was ill. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh. And um, he just had total lack of judgment skills. So he erred on the side of trusting people who were using yes. him to get pain yes. meds. I see. I see. Yes. So he's had the kind of, and you've had a very unusual experience of early dementia and that he spent most of the time in prison. The last, yes, the last year. Mm-hmm. And in that year, his health has went down uh, tremendously. His dementia has got much much worse, which I, I think it probably would have anyway, but I think the prison helped, you know, make it move faster. Well, what we know is when you transfer someone to a facility when they have dementia, often their health gets much worse. So it's, it's much yeah. harder to, to yep. orient. So you had to deal with kind of the overwhelming news that your young husband, 57, had dementia on top of the fact that he was now incarcerated. I can imagine that at that, at that age... When you were trying to figure out what's wrong with him, dementia is not the first thing on your screen. No, it just, it was, I can tell you that I was mad at him. I was distraught with him. I was angry with him, uh, you know, because of the dementia that I didn't know about. There were personal things that happened that were inappropriate, and and I was just angry. I was so angry and hurt, and this wasn't the man that I married almost 40 years ago. And, um... It was scary. It was it was actually terrifying, but but uh, we get through it. So, Melinda, when you say it was terrifying, how do you mean? Um, terrifying because you don't know what the future is going to hold. Uh, stay-at-home mom, first of all, and no real job skills. Not what you had planned for your 50s. You know, two kids left to get through college. Terrified of the future. Terrified of what was going to happen to him. Yeah. Uh, was I going to be able to take care of him? Uh, how are we going to make it work? How? Just so many questions, so many questions. And when you, when he was first diagnosed with frontotemporal dementia, did you have someone to really explain to you how this was going to go? What you could expect? Um, honestly, um, no. Uh, the physicians that diagnosed my husband, they kind of. If I may say this, I don't mean to be kind of deserted as, as such, but in April of 2012, we were able to become part of a research program out in San Francisco with Dr. Bruce Miller, and um, that was a life-saving experience because he explained to us what was going to happen, gave us information, helped us even explain some of the uh, legal issues you know, and, and the, that my husband wasn't the first person that would ever got in trouble with the law because of dementia, you know, and it was just reassuring to have a professional take the time to listen to you and explain things to you. I'm so glad that happened. It sounds like that made a huge difference. Yes, it did. And was Dr. Miller the first person to tell you that there might be a genetic cause to your husband's illness? Yes, yes. we went out there and were part of the research program, and they did all kinds of testing. Uh, you know, they took my my husband's family history, and uh, 
they did do genetic testing out there, yes. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that because mm-hmm. this is sort of the the cutting edge of the future, as it were, and there's so many issues involved with getting someone tested genetically. Mm-hmm. Were you at all ambivalent about finding out if it was genetic, or were your children at all concerned about that? No. Honestly, we were all... Um, I think I think it was important for us to, to know um, it, because it explains so many things. You know, it, it just... It, it, it verified what he had, you know, it, it made it real. It made it something that we knew he was born with. Um, so, no, we weren't scared of that, uh, maybe of the results, but we were not scared of, of actually doing the testing, though. And, and what is the name of the gene that your husband has? The C9. C9, okay. And, and it could be more, it's probably more elaborate than that, but that's how they explained it to me. So, yes. Just the C9 gene. Okay, and with the C9 gene, um, sometimes it's carried by, you know, did either of his parents show any signs of dementia? Yes, and uh, they both passed away 20 years ago. So now you look back, you know, they, we thought they were just elderly people. Uh, they just had some kind of dementia. It was never diagnosed um, or anything like that. But looking back now, it does make some sense, yes. I see. I know that there's some thought with some versions of frontotemporal dementia that the person can be a little bit unusual even earlier than their late 50s. Do you feel like in retrospect yes. that was true for your husband? Yes, yes. Honestly, uh, that's that's really funny that you asked that question. Uh, we we met in high school, so I've known him a long time. He was always different, very very intelligent, uh, but always different. In always what way? had his little. Um, well, he can I say it? He was kind of a nerd. You uh-huh. know, you can say <laughs> it. You can definitely say it. <laughs> yeah, very very much of a kind of a nerd, the pocket protector type of guy, you know, and um, very poor family. Um, and he got to med school, did great. You know, he was just a little quirky. He was just, he was just a different individual, but... Do you have a story that might illustrate how, what you mean by quirky? <laughs> oh, goodness. He just, there were things that made him different. And, you know, back in the, the mid-1990s, he got on, uh, kicks, like if you drank five gallons of water a day, it would make you healthier. You know, he would get fixated on things. Yes. Now, looking back, now we understand why. He just could not, he has such bad judgment. He couldn't deal with reality, I think, sometimes. You know, you mentioned, and I think this is very common, Melinda, that in the beginning you were just so angry with him because he was, presumably yes. he was impossible, yes. which is classically how it is. You don't realize they have dementia. You just know that this person is becoming very odd, very inappropriate, often mm-hmm. rude, and yes. and often very dependent. You described him following you around. Yes. That is the classic story, you know, that because there's, and often it's because there is a little bit more memory loss than maybe meets the eye. There's sort of like a need to be with mm-hmm. someone, and that can be very annoying. <laughs> yes. Did you find that, that um, once you knew he was actually ill, did you find that that actually made it easier because you could become yes. more compassionate? Yes. I can tell you, I can tell you completely, honestly, that as soon as we had that diagnosis, after the shock went away, everything was totally forgiven and forgotten. You know, it was like, 
he's my husband. I love him. He has this illness. I am so sorry that I treated him the way they did. I'm sorry that I didn't recognize the signs earlier. He was a he, he was a good man. He was a good provider. Uh, he was a good physician. Everything, as soon as we hit that diagnosis and got over the shock, everything was forgiven and forgotten. It sounds awful, but I think I love him more now than I did four, four years ago. Do you know what I mean? Because everything made sense now. It made all the difference in the world. Right. He couldn't, he couldn't help himself. No. So you get connected with this physician in San Francisco, Dr. Bruce Miller, who's one of the world experts on frontotemporal yeah. dementia. He yeah. connects you to research. You find out that your husband has this gene, the C9 gene, and you have six children. Mm-hmm. And you know that if you get the gene, you get the illness. It's what we call a right. dominant gene. Yes. And so tell me a little bit about the conversations that went on among your children, to the extent that you know about them, about whether or not they wanted to find out if they carried the gene? Um, I can tell you that uh, as of right now, none of the children want to pursue it. Uh, At the very beginning, there was one of our daughters that was somewhat interested, you know, in maybe finding out, but that, that faded um, the other five never had an interest in knowing. Uh, this is their response. If I have it, I have it. I was born with it. There's nothing I can do about it. Why live in fear of it? And we just kind of all made a pact with each other that we were always watching. And if we saw signs or we saw things that made us a little bit leery, you know, maybe they were going down that path, that we would immediately deal with it. Uh, but otherwise, we felt no reason to to ever find out because um, there was nothing we could do. It, it sounds like, you know, given the fact that there were such difficult consequences for your husband, you know, in not knowing what was going wrong until he actually started making mistakes at work, right. I, I can imagine that that pact to watch out for each other and intervene is very comforting. Yes, um, yes. And, and when you say that, when you say, you know, we would intervene, what do you have in mind? What do you think you would do if... if... Uh, I think just be there, you know, and, and get them out of situations that might involve them doing something that they wouldn't have do- done normally, you know, uh, trying to keep them from going down the wrong path, uh, getting in trouble or, or causing injury to themselves or someone else. Um we're just we're close enough, and there's enough of us that we could. I think we could take care of the situation. <laughs> I'd like to think we could, anyway. Yes, I mean, I suppose that's the one advantage you have. The, the one among so many losses is that you can have some anticipation and therefore make mm-hmm. that kind of plan. So one of the things I know I know about your story, Melinda, is that you have been uh, part of a support group. Mm-hmm. For yes, other yes. family members, and is it a support group specifically for frontotemporal dementia? Yes, actually, it is. Uh, it is, I believe, the first support group uh, in the state that I live in, and uh, we, you know, other people can come, but it's mainly FTD. And what does it do for you to go to that group? Uh, it is just wonderful. I look forward to it every every month. Uh, it's enlightening. It's uplifting. 
you know, to be in a room uh, where you can cry and you can laugh with people and you can all share each other's stories and just try to make another person feel better and other people make me feel better. We have exchanged information about things, you know, that work, things that don't work, personal matters, legal matters, financial matters. We've all exchanged stories and, you know, we there's always little tidbits you pick up like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. You know, I need to take that, get that taken care of. And, and Dr. Mary um, has been very good about bringing in speakers, you know, to talk about genetics and to talk about financial issues and to talk about long-term care. It's just it's a wonderful place to go and share. One of the things that can be very awkward about frontotemporal dementia specifically is, is, is again, this issue of social inappropriateness. Mm-hmm. And I know that for some people with this illness, they can develop toward the end of their life something called Kluver-Busey syndrome, where they become maybe sexually inappropriate or sometimes putting sort of anything and everything into their mouth, almost the way like a young child would. And that can be so hard to deal with because it's so uncomfortable and it feels embarrassing to talk about. Is that something that you've been able to talk about and learn about in the group? Well, I don't know if we've talked about a lot of the any sexual things particularly, um, but we have talked about inappropriate behavior in restaurants, you yes. know, and we've all been given little cards to take with us to hand to the servers, you know, to explain our, our, our loved one's disease. Um, do you have a story of how someone might be inappropriate in a restaurant? Like, what do you mean when you say that? Uh, well, what was the one story from the lady? that They just don't know how to talk to the waitress. They're very rude, or uh, they repeat themselves, or they they have been known to, to uh, uh, wink at the waitress or try to touch their hand, you know, um, things that they would have never done otherwise. Um, yes. So, and those can be embarrassing, you know, for people. Um, so that's why we, we did get the little cards made up and stuff to hand out. But uh, What a great idea, Melinda. That, that was yeah. a great idea to do that. Yes. I know that sometimes people with FTD can also become really needing certain rituals to, for things to always go in a certain order to mm-hmm. feel safe. And is that something that happened to you also? Yes, yes. He... Uh, he had these certain routines. What was really odd was he was a very routine person all of his life. You know, we were, we did certain things every night before we went to bed. He was a health fanatic, so he had all these health, health issues that he took care of every night. This is one of his quirky things. Yes, now that I think about it, he took a certain amount of vitamins, different kinds of vitamins every night. He ate certain kinds of fruit every night. He... Uh, these little mixtures of his his uh, old folks' tales uh, from his family. He drunk those every night. He did these for most of our marriage, probably 35, 34 years out of our marriage. The last couple of years, he quit doing them. He just completely quit doing them. And um, so that was, that was odd. But by this time, we knew something was wrong with him. Um, but, you know, in the house, he would be up and then he would be down and then some days he would sleep all day and other days he would just roam the house you know and again all part of the disease now you know you you recognize all these things you know it sounds like he was very concerned about his health for a long time do you think that he intuited that something was not right much earlier Mm -hmm. you know 
I wish I wish I knew for sure. Um, I, I think because of his upbringing, I think he had to have always had a feel that that might happen to him. I, I don't know that he ever expressed it to me, but he was a very wise man. I will tell you, and I promise I'm not making this up, in February of 2011, before he had his breakdown in May, he came home from work one day. He said, you know, I've been having these issues at work, and you, you people are telling me I'm doing things I don't know I'm doing. Um, I read this magazine, this psychiatry magazine, and I think I might have FTD. I am telling you, he spoke those words. It never went any farther. You know, it was just something he had read, and uh, then, you know, we got the diagnosis in September. So he knew yes. something. He knew. Yes. I think. I think deep down in there, he knew something was wrong. He knew something was wrong. Yeah. Did he ever tell you about how afraid he was about it? Um, not till the summer. Not really. He didn't really express it. Uh, he was, you know, brought up to be the man and the caretaker and the provider, and so no, he didn't really, uh, didn't really talk a lot, a lot mm -hmm. about it. No, mm -hmm. which is a mistake, you know. And now a mistake on my part as well. I should have pursued it more. Uh, but you're busy doing your own thing, and you you don't take notice when you should. Well, right, and you didn't even know what you were dealing with yet at the time. No, no. no. So no. I, I want to come back to something you said, because, you know, I understand that he has been officially released now from prison to go to a nursing home, but you're, of mm -hmm. course, in the process of searching for a nursing home, which is no small right. feat. Right. Can you tell me, um, clearly the prison must feel that he's sort of too ill to be there. What What is it like to be with him now? How would you describe how he is? Uh, at this point in time... Um it's not as scary as it was, but it's it's uh, it's heartbreaking. Uh, actually, when we go see him, uh, we usually stay anywhere from thirty minutes to an hour. And uh, the last couple of visits, he may have actually acknowledged us a couple of minutes out of the visit. I will tell you that if we can pull him out, if we can get to him, he knows who we are. Although he will tell you that we're imposters. We've been sent there by some evil force. Uh, but uh, he, it's just sad. It's really sad. He uh, uh, won't, he lays on the floor. Uh, he stands up or he lays down. He will not sit in a chair. Uh, he doesn't like to be groomed at all. Uh, it's very, um, it's hard to think of this 59-year-old brilliant man coming to this. Uh, you're always anxious to see him, you know, but he has deteriorated a lot in the past year. Uh, a year ago at this time, actually, we didn't get to see him for quite a while after he was there, but he was able to talk at that time and ask us how everybody was, and, you know, we told him about a new grandchild, you know, and everything, and now there's, there's no discussion, there's no talk. We just basically sit there and watch watch him and tell him stories and, you know, try to engage him. But the only thing that really ever gets him excited is when they bring him food. He loves food and his snacks. <laughs> so so he's a lot like a child, you know, in many in many ways. But he's scared. 
he um, seems really scared. And yeah. honestly, if I may say this, he, he really is ready to die. You know, before he got so bad, he, he mentioned that numerous times. He told so. you that directly? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Me and his children. Yes. Yes. And if there, if I don't know where you live, I don't know what the, the laws are, but I know there's very few states in the country where there are um, laws allowing people to choose the time of their own death. If there was physician-assisted suicide in your state, would you think that that was something he would have wanted or chosen? No, 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 not not with his beliefs, uh-huh. you know, not with not with his inner beliefs. He would, he would never do that. I think that's just a... Uh, I think now he's, you know, when he realized how bad he was, that was the easy way, you know, and to keep his family from going through so much pain. That's always the the thing, isn't it? He doesn't want you to suffer. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. But but we know that's not the answer, you know, and he knows that's not the answer, and God will take him when it's time. You mentioned before that he, you know, he talked to you directly about this. I know many people with frontotemporal dementia lose their speech. Is he able to, to talk in a normal way at this point? Uh, when he speaks, yeah, and yes, they're not like, um, you can ask him basic questions, like, Dad, do you want your blanket? No. Um, he will go off on, on, on uh, ranting and raving about things because he's, He's sometimes talking to another person or another power or another being. So sometimes he talks a long time to that person, but not to you. I see. Um, yours is just basically give and take. Yeah. You know, do you want a bite of this? Do you want your drink? Do you want us to do this for you? You know, it's just those kind of questions and answers. And those are very often we don't even get that. Right. So it sounds like it's sort of a minimal, a minimal language interaction at this point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned to me, Melinda, before we started taping, that one of the things you loved about your support group was that you could laugh and not mm-hmm. be judged. Yes. And of course, that got my attention because it seems so tragic, and in fact, is so tragic. But we do need to laugh. Oh yes. And you go to the support group and you tell those stories, and the people there tell the story about how their husband dressed that day, or um, one of our members, her husband likes to eat the same food. She fixes the same food all day long for him to eat. You know, I know it doesn't sound funny to other people, but (laughs) when you're in the room with these people and they're just telling you about their day, it is funny for us. It's just a good stress relieval. But yeah, there's all kinds of funny things that dad has said and did in the last year that that just gives us um, a little a little happiness. And what I always share with our support group is you take a minute. If you can just get a second or a minute of something good, then that's what you go with. Like my visit tomorrow, every time we go, I try to bring home one positive thing that happened. Uh, a few months ago, or back last winter, he actually, I told him, you know what tomorrow is? And he said, yes. And I said, that would be our anniversary, how many years? And he remembered. I will remember that all my life now. So you just have to take those little glimmer of things and just hold on to them and make them what gets you through the next day and the next day. You know, just those little things. 
Melinda, it's been such a pleasure to have you as Thank my you. guest on Safe Space. Thank you so much for your generosity in sharing your story with me. You're very welcome. Thank you. And I want to just tell people that if you have a family member with frontotemporal dementia or someone who at a young age is exhibiting you know, unusual personality changes, loss of social judgment in a way that concerns you do approach your family physician. Dr. Bruce Miller is at UC San Francisco, and he is one of the world experts on frontotemporal dementia and may be a resource for you. And there are local dementia support groups in most large cities in the country now, often found through the Alzheimer's Association. It might be one way to begin to find an FTD group. This is WMPG. I've been talking to Melinda about what it's like to be married to someone with a genetic form of early dementia as part of her large family. If you got to just hear a part of this interview and you'd like to hear the rest of it, please go to our website, which is safespaceradio.com. You can download the show there to listen to on your phone. You can email the link to a friend. You can post it on Facebook. You can download it from iTunes. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show, Maurice Lennon for the music, and Jim Russell for consulting with us. Coming up next is Speak Freely.